Thank you for joining us for the Midweek Bible Study with Dr. David Wilson. Now let's join Dr. Wilson for a more in-depth study of the Word of God. I want to begin reading the last three verses of chapter 3 because it flows right into chapter 4. Paul's praying for the church in Thessalonica. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that we may be so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints finally then brethren we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Remember the Alamo. All Texans know that slogan. It was the battle cry of the Texas Revolution to defeat defeat Santa Ana's army. And the man who came up with that phrase was none other than Sam Houston. Sam Houston was the first elected president of the newly formed Republic of Texas. And later he became a United States Senator. Still, later he became the governor of Texas. But what a lot of people don't know is that Sam Houston had been the governor of Tennessee before he came to Texas. He was also a drunkard. He had a foul mouth. He was unsaved, separated from God and his sins. And while Sam Houston was the governor of Tennessee, his wife divorced him. And because of this, he resigned as governor in shame. He experienced intense heartache and despair over the following years. So he tried to escape that by running off and living among the Cherokee people and in the woods as an alcoholic. As an alcoholic, they nicknamed him the old drunk. The Cherokee people would find Sam Houston sprawled out on trails in the forest, uh, and he was so drunk that they had to move him out of the way to get by. And when Sam Houston finally traveled to the Texas Territory, His life was a wreck, and one day he met a Baptist pastor who shared the gospel with him, and Sam Houston received Jesus Christ as his Savior. 
Now, the old Sam Houston died that day, and a new one was born. He was reborn as a child of God. He had, God had set him apart from darkness and miraculously transferred him into the kingdom of his dear son. And it is the spiritual sanctification or growth where God changes us forever when we receive his grace. He saves us instantly, but he begins to grow us. But even though Sam Houston had been justified and sanctified and he still had some of his old ways. And one day while he was riding his horse along a trail, the horse stumbled and he spontaneously barked out some vulgar language reverting to his old habit of cursing. And, but immediately he was convicted of his sin. And he got down off of his horse and he knelt down on the trail and he cried out to God in Holy Spirit-led repentance and personal sanctification because see, Sam Houston had already been saved, but the Holy Spirit through God's word was teaching him to be a different person. Well, that's the testimony of all of us. We're all sinners separated from God and when we receive God's spirit into our life through salvation, he begins to work on us. And Paul, when he was writing to the Thessalonians, realizes that they've been set apart by Jesus and now he's exhorting them to grow in their walk with the Lord. And so there's several concerns here as he really shares what I call a life pleasing to God I'm going to tell you right now, it's a difficult subject to deal with, but we're going to talk about it. First of all, he was concerned that we all should be advancing in godliness. You'll see the word walk in verse one, how you ought to walk and to please God. It, it's the word that speaks of our lifestyle. It may be that that word walk coming to refer to the Christian life came as a result of, in the book of Acts, this group were, were known as the way. And maybe that word walk came out of it. This, this section of chapter four really ends in verse 12. We'll not make it to verse 12 tonight, but it's interesting that he bookends that section, verses one and verse 12 with the word walk. The word lifestyle, to, to live it out. And he said, you got this from us. We, we told you in verse one, you received this from us. You know, isn't it interesting that we have a tendency to think that the people back in this day didn't have the same stuff we have. They didn't have to deal with what we deal with. But you know what, they did. And in fact, probably more so than some of the things we're dealing with, but they felt the same kind of pressures. And the first priority in the Christian life is to live and to please God. It says to walk and to please God. Now we know that the only way to please God is through faith, trusting him and living in obedience. But he further exhorts them to do more and more, he says, to, that you would abound more and more as you receive from us and that you walk and to please God. Now there's progress that has to be made. And so that means that there's some things that you're going to begin to do and there's some things you're not going to do anymore. It's interesting that he also couples with this advancing and growing in godliness he immediately talks about abstaining 
from immorality. Moral purity is a part of wholeness. You cannot please God if you indulge in sexual immorality. You see, words like immorality don't seem to register with people today, so let me just be real blunt. Immorality means sexual wrongdoing. No premarital sex, no extramarital sex, being unfaithful to your spouse, no homosexual sex. That's very clear in the scripture in many places. No pornography. In fact, the word immorality is the word pornea. We get our word pornography, but it means all kinds of sexual sin. It's interesting to know that when he begins to talk about sanctification and growing in the Lord, he begins with this subject. I don't think it's an accident. Because no sin causes more chaos in a culture than the abuse of sex. It leads to pain and loss and misery and social decay. Charles Mylander wrote a book entitled Running the Red Lights, Putting the Brakes on Sexual Temptation, and he quotes an anthropologist by the name of J.D. Unwin who conducted an exhaustive study of the 88 civilizations that have existed in the history of the world. Each culture reflected a similar cycle. First of all, they had a strict code of sexual conduct. And when their society or civilization ended, it ended with the demand for complete freedom to express individual passion. Unwin reports that every society, every society which extended sexual permissiveness to its people was soon to perish. There have been no exceptions. Now, where do you think we are? E. Stanley Jones observed, sex has produced more happiness and more unhappiness than any one single thing in life. It all depends on what you do with it. So to abstain from sexual immorality means to have none of that stuff going on in your life. The phrase sexual immorality comes from the word pornea, and I've already mentioned that it's any kind of sex outside of marriage in every form of pornography. And this term covers the sins of the mind, the body, the ears, the eyes, the lips. He forbids all expressions of pornea because he's concerned with us growing in the, God, in the Lord. We, we talk about being saved, but the, the Lord says, you've been saved to be to grow, to become more like what I want you to be. And the word sanctification means to be separate to God, to be distinct. And this word sanctification in verses three through seven appears four times in a various form. It may not be translated sanctification, but the root word's there four times. So there's something about growing in the Lord. It does not mean saying no to anything that is fun. It means progressively growing to be more like the Lord who said, you shall be holy for I am holy. Notice several things about this abstaining. First of all, it's a command of God. Paul bluntly says, this is the will of God. 
your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You ever ask anybody, you ever ask your children what part of no do you not understand? Well, what part of abstain do you not understand? It means to keep as far away from it as possible, to have nothing to do with it. As believers, we should never ask, how far can we go? No, or how, how, how close can we get to the line and step over it, and not step over it? We should be saying, how far away from the line can I get? That's the command of God. The second thing, it's an absolute prohibition. It means there can be no moderate immorality. You can't have a social affair or social adultery. There's no victimless pornography. We're not to dabble in sexual sin at all. God gave us sex for a reason and to be in the confines of marriage only. The third thing is you can control your own body. Paul says we're to learn to control our bodies in holiness and wholeness and honor. Control contributes to that sense of wholeness. Why do you think the scripture, one of the gifts of the spirit, or one of the fruits of the spirit, I should say, is, the, is self-control? You ever use the excuse, or maybe you've heard the excuse, well, you know, I just can't help myself. I'm, I'm just a guy, or I'm just a girl, or I'm in love. You know what I find so interesting about those justifications is that in the most intense heat of the moment, any one, of, any one person can come to a screeching halt. If a policeman walks up to your parked car and steamed windows, knocks on the window, I guarantee you, you can stop. If a man walks in armed with a shotgun with you and his wife, I guarantee you, you can stop in a hurry. It's all a matter of motivation. He also says, don't cheat another person. Paul tells him to make sure that no one transgresses and wrongs, or the words defraud or cheat. While Paul may have adultery specifically in mind here, the un underlying principle is still clear. Our sexual, listen to this, our sexual immorality always affects others. No exceptions. Whether it's the wrongdoing of the one who is a partner in a sin, or our spouse, or our future spouse, or someone else's spouse, or even a woman or a man in a photograph, a woman or a man who's sadly given themselves to something so shameful, whoever it is, Sexual sin is never a private thing. The idol of lust always shapes our heart. It never can make you more like Christ. It always makes us more selfish, more impulsive, more insensitive to the things of God. And so we wrong others not only because of what we do, but because of what we fail to do. And in verse six, the word brother indicates any person. The point is, God cares for people. Sexual sin steals from others. It steals both from the person and from their present and future mate, their parents, other family members, present or future children. There's no difference than stealing someone's property. We have no more right to have sex with someone's spouse because they are attractive to us than we have a right to steal their car because it appeals to us. 
I hope there's some young people listening tonight, maybe online, I, I don't know. I don't know who's listening. But some, I've heard young people say, well, well, God puts this sex drive in us and then he says, oh, but you have to wait and that's cruel. It's kind of like buying your 16-year-old son a brand new Lamborghini, parking it outside and then saying, it's yours, it's paid for, but there are no keys and you can't drive it. So every day he has to walk by and look at it, sit in it, but can't drive it. He has the car, but nowhere to go. Is God crazy? No, he's very smart. His design is for us to have this beautiful thing called intimacy and oneness in marriage where two become one for life. And when we choose to ignore that, there are consequences. I meant to bring a piece of scotch tape in here today, tonight. You, you tear off a piece of tape and stick it on your shirt. And then you peel it off and stick it on somebody else's shirt. And you pick it on, stick it on their forehead and you, and you, or you stick it on their pants and whatever. And every time you do that, some of that comes off on that tape. And after a while, that tape won't stick to anything. Well, same thing happens with sexuality. We want to be able to stick together through thick and thin so we can enjoy the oneness waiting for us. When you go outside of God's principles, the stickability in marriage is diminished. And many people are married and wonder why they don't have the ability for a cohesive relationship. This may be the reason why, because you go outside of what God intended and it starts to affect everything. And folks, I also want you to see, since you're giving me so many amens anyway, I'm gonna just keep on going. It's, you'll notice in verse six, it says there's the word avenger. The Lord is the avenger. Hmm. That word is only used right here and in Romans 13.4, where Romans 13.4, it refers to the governing authorities who bear the sword and will pour out the wrath on the one who breaks the law or sins. Here, it means one who punishes. It's a very scary word. Paul probably has this in mind. He may have been thinking of the judgment seat of Christ. It's talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.10 when Jesus himself will judge the believers or, or offer the Bema seat. It's also likely that God gives us over Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28 to the consequences of sin in our person's life and the believers who cheat are often cheated upon by someone else. What goes around comes around. That's what's amazing to me. It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I, I, I uh, need to be careful what I say. You see, an immoral Christian teenager may learn the hard way that 20 to 30% of condoms fail. Or there may be some other consequences that happen. We hear endless stories of damaged families or children's lives being ruined by the adulterous affairs of their parents. There's enormous misery and heartache that goes along with it. Silently, invisibly, the judgment falls. Believer and unbeliever can escape the consequences. It, you may think you're just going to be happy as a lark, but 
You can't, you can't run from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to make you absolutely miserable because you're living a lifestyle that is not the will of God. It says, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, abstain from all sexual immorality. You know, there's the law of inevitable consequences. You can be forgiven of sin, and, and we're gonna, I'm gonna end this on a positive note. It's just, I've gotta sail pretty high before I bring it in for landing here. <laughs> the law of consequences. You can be forgiven of the evil, but that doesn't do away with the evil results. Forgiveness restores the broken relationship, gives us strength by God, but it does not change or eliminate the hurt here on the earth. Every believer has to face that. God tries to teach us this all through the Old Testament. You see Israel. I mean, Israel's a perfect example. Listen to what he said. Listen to what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 31. He said, speaking about their disobedience, he said, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they shall be consumed and many evils and troubles shall come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? And then he goes on in Deuteronomy 28, 32, says, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes shall look on and yearn for them continually, but there shall be nothing you can do. There's so many families broken in our nation. There's so much sexual sin under the guise of freedom, under the guise of hiding in the, under, behind the Constitution and whatever you want to hide behind. And just because the Supreme Court says something is legal, they are not God. I don't care what they say. The thing that's frustrating to me is how many people I know personally whose lives have been wrecked by this very thing. Two close friends. I don't have very many friends. I got a lot of acquaintances. But two close friends wrecked by this right here, this year. Verse five, it talks about lust. Let's talk about avoiding the trap of lust. He expects us to live in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Well, many of us have been far too hard on those who do not know God. How do you expect people who do not know God to act? <laughs> They're going to act like they don't know God. And so all of this stuff that's going on and all of this stuff in the nation, these people don't know Jesus. You know, the only hope we have is for them to know Jesus because he changes the heart, but... But what about when you know Jesus? You know, believers need to be told either be pure or stop calling yourself a Christian. Not perfect, we're not perfect, but there's open sin that you're not supposed to be a part of. And Paul said, if you're gonna walk this way, you need to learn to control your own body. So let me give you some practical guidelines right quick. 
for dealing with sexual temptation. First of all, know your limits. You need to be honest with yourself. If this is a temptation for you, you need to be honest with yourself. Quit making excuses and say, you know what? I need to do something about that. So the second thing is to stay out of questionable areas. You know, I I really feel like I'm wasting my time tonight talking to all you old people. (laughs) I'm one of us. I call myself all us old people. Maybe you can help your children and grandchildren. And believe it or not, believe it or not, just because you're a senior adult does not mean this is a temptation because there are a lot of immoral senior adults. I've had men come to me, some of them, one of them in particular I'm thinking of, who's now with Jesus. His wife had passed away several years before, and he said, Brother David, you will not believe. The, and he, he, I'll just say, he, he said, you would not believe the women out there that still have this on their mind and they're, they make no qualms about it, which I found, I was shocked. But I'm just saying, so maybe I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> Stay out of questionable areas. Raunchy music, you know, teenagers who listen to music with sexually graphic or degrading lyrics are more likely to be sexually active, 51% compared to 29%. Refuse to live together before you get married. Did you know Rutgers University suggests that 90% of couples who live together before marriage will end in divorce? And yet we have more and more couples today moving in and living together, and older people too. What kind of movies do you watch? Where do you go on your computer? You gotta be careful. The third thing is don't fight the battle alone. Self-control means being humble enough to know when you need help. And if you need some help, find a trustworthy and compassionate brother or sister and confess your sin and ask for help. Let somebody hold you accountable. The fourth thing is don't make excuses. The, The word translated abstain literally means to hold oneself back or to keep oneself from. And the reason this concept is important is because the world wants you to ask this question, how far can I go, not how pure can I stay? And our flesh is always tempted to rationalize. So we think, well, I'll just set the bar low and then I can meet it. Our flesh is always tempted to rationalize. God's word says this in Romans 13, 11 to 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you've got the ravenous lion of lust in your life, don't throw it any food. No provision. That requires self-control. The next thing is to be honest about your problems. That kind of goes along with don't fight the battle alone, but don't make excuses for what you're doing. 
I've, I've had that happen. I've tried to help friends that I saw headed down the wrong path and they try to turn it around on you like it's your fault. When nobody thinks about my feelings, nobody thinks about that. You need to be honest. If, if you've got a problem, be honest with yourself. And then trace the cycle of lust in your life. What patterns are you in that are leading to that? And you need to break that cycle. And finally, you need to remember who you are. You're, you're God's child. You don't live like this. This is about sexual sin. You don't live like this. The last thing is abiding in holiness. Folks, holiness does not mean grimness. It doesn't mean you walk around looking like you were baptized in persimmon juice. It it doesn't mean you're looking sad all the time. We've gotten this idea that holiness means that you don't smile. You, You look like those old photographs where nobody ever smiled. Holiness does not mean grimness. Two things. Verse 7 and 8 says that God called, verse 7 says God called us to purity, to holiness. These words were set against the background of what God wanted his people to do. This is the way he created us in Jesus. He's born, we were born again to be more like him. And if we disregard the instructions, we're turning our back on him. And it also states that rejecting purity means rejecting God, verse 8. Maybe you've turned, tuned in online tonight. If you're still there, you may have already turned it off. But if you're still there, you've got a beef with me. Don't, don't ask me. It basically says if you reject this, you don't reject man, you're rejecting God. And before you say things are different today, you realize that the people in Thessalonica had come out of a pagan background were actually, and and this seaport town that Thessalonica is, I mean, you think of all the people from all around the world coming through this place and all these sailors and all these merchants brought with them the usual desires for gratification and more importantly, the Greek religions of that day practiced sacred, what they called prostitution. That's an oxymoron. But that involved hiring a prostitute at a pagan temple as part of your act of worship. So it was rampant. And Paul is telling these new believers, you need to to be holy and, and to abstain. And given the moral atmosphere of the day, there had to be enormous pressure on them. But the last phrase is a very hopeful phrase, a very strengthening, very encouraging phrase, but because it says, God has given us his Holy Spirit. There's your strength right there. He has given us his Holy Spirit. The word gives is, and it's in present tense, which means God gives and keeps on giving his Holy Spirit to you. He didn't just give it to you and say, good luck. No, obviously the Spirit is 
part of the Trinity. He lives in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Therefore, when God commands you to abstain, he can give you the power to do it. You got to listen to it. He gives you the power to obey. It's a wonderful thought. You're not in this battle alone. Your weakness is his strength. He says, if you need help, you've got it. I'm going to give it to you. And in this day in which we live, I know that many of you are probably thinking, well, it's too late for me. I've already, I've already messed up my life. But I, what I want you to see in here is stop doing it. No longer be involved in it. Romans 8.37 says, let us live no longer for ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us. All of us have messed up our life in one way or the other. There's not anybody in here that has it all together and that has never sinned and has never messed up. So instead of looking back and thinking, well, I'm just too far gone. I've messed up too much. Listen, God's in the salvage business. The, the question is, are you really serious about your walk with Jesus? And if you are, then you say, Lord, tonight, tonight, I'm going to give this to you. And when I walk out of this room, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to break this cycle, to start anew, to change my patterns. If I'm in an immoral relationship, I'm going to stop it right now. And I want to follow the way you want me to do it. You have the power to do that. I'm, 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 I sound angry about it. I'm, I don't know that anger is the right word. Sick of it. I'm sick of Christians living in sin and excusing it and saying, you know, it's just what we do now. I don't think that's what you want to tell Jesus one day. It's just, it's just what we do now. I'm not, not mad. I'm just broken hearted. It's more the word, I guess. Just broken hearted. Sick. Makes me sick to see people throw their lives away and to, to ruin their lives. I, it just does. It just, I don't know about you, but it just, it just makes me sick. Not that I'm perfect. Please, please just misunderstand. I've got plenty of faults. But this kind of sin, it has so many far-reaching effects. So, Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to watch more live streams or additional Bible studies, please go to southcrestlive.tv. We hope to see you again next week.